listen, same vision is for equal rights and justice for the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voice. Welcome. Welcome to another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast, where each week we have incredible solutionaries. There are so many things we can watch out there that just deluge us with all the negativity in the world. We can drown in a, a sea of that darkness. And we, our goal is to spread some light by bringing people who are solving problems, coming up with creative new ways of solving the seemingly in, unbeatable problems. And uh, today we have a very special guest. Uh, she is the organizing lead for Oxfam America. Now Oxfam, works in over 70 countries with thousands of partners and allies and communities all over the world to, to save lives in emergencies and to help people to rebuild their neighborhoods and campaigns for genuine and lasting change. I, I mean, I knew of, of, of Oxfam, it seems to me, since I was a kid. It's one of the, you know, one of the, the established kind of charities out there. But lately, they've kind of moved into the, the cutting edge. <laughs> and we'll talk about that a little bit more in our podcast. Now, today's guest, our very special guest today, uh, she is the organizing lead for Oxfam America, and she works with migrants and refugees. She works on fighting gender-based violence, and, and she also works with members of Congress to shift the policies and to, to make uh, major changes. And she works with multi-issue coalitions in California and Arizona and New Mexico to advocate for, for migrants, for, for women of color, uh, for, for, for the people of our planet, really. Uh, so without further ado, I want to introduce to you Christina Garcia, and welcome to our podcast, Christina. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, so I appreciate you inviting me on, and I can't wait to hopefully try to bring a little bit of um, hope, right, to all of your audience members. And um, I think that's the only thing that keeps me running and keeps yep. those of us that do this work um, running is, is hope beautiful. and a belief that things will change. Yes, beautiful. Uh, that is so, so crucial. Now I understand that you were born in El Paso, uh, but from parents who were uh, migrants and that you grew up going back and forth across the, the Mexican border. Uh, tell us a little bit about the shifts, about what, what it was like when you grew up and the shifts you've seen in the world over that border. Well, yeah, I was, I grew up, um, so I grew up in Chicago, but I was born in El Paso. And so those are my two points of reference. Um, when I was, when I, when I was three, my parents moved to Chicago. Um, and so I always say that I have a I guess a border story in the sense that even even when we were you know a little bit older, we started to just travel back to Mexico over the summers. So when we had summer uh, vacations from school, my parents would take us up by car actually, um, and so we actually have to cross quite a few of the international borders. So I think I'm at like three of them right now, um, probably more, but I can't recall, but definitely El Paso and Juarez is always one of the ones that really stands out because my dad being from Juarez, um, I remember just even as of recently before the pandemic in 2019, we took our last family trip to El Paso because we still have family there and just walking across, right? Um, 
and obviously I say that with a lot of privilege because I am a U.S. citizen, right? And my parents also became naturalized. And so I'm fully aware that um, this is a privilege that many families do not have and many people around the world do not have, right? And so um, for me, something that has been highly politicized in the news, right, all over, um, borders being seen as the, this contentious, violent place. Um, while some of those stories might be true, the stories of love and family and cross-culture and um, cross-identity um, are also true, right? So as I described earlier in my, when I, when, when I came to the Rotary Club, um, Arthur, and you heard, I like to describe myself as having really embraced my multiple identities, right? My multiple, um, the fact that I am bicultural, bilingual, um, and that I did grow up quite literally having to navigate both U.S. culture here. And when I was, I was taking quite a bit to Mexico. Um, so Mexican culture there. Um, so I really grew up like seeing both things and just finding it really normal to walk across the border and go like grocery shopping with my aunts and uncles there, right? So I just found it really normal. So for me, it's not, I guess I really, um, I totally see the way that sometimes these narratives have been shaped and formed to almost really, um, I guess, marginalize or really create these other stories about people on the border when in fact, it's actually um, El Paso Juarez. El Paso is one of the safest cities in the United States. Um, and what our borders also offer us is this ability to trade and to bring goods back and forth, right? And so we're like interlocked with our neighbors to the South, I, I feel. And so a lot of times those are the stories that are, are omitted. The way that there's this entire community along the border just kind of going through life moving back and forth as it, in a normal manner, right? Yeah. And so those of us in the interior of the country uh, have the, these ideas, right, uh, around what happens there. But those of us that have actually lived there or spent some time there, it's like not a big deal to just yeah. flow, flow, yeah. Uh, you also have indigenous roots. Uh, do you think, what, what do you think about uh, uh, the, the reality of that border? Is it something human-made or, you know, it, it feels so set in stone, but what, what's the, what, what's the real story? Well, for sure. It's, um, we know that borders are man-made. Um, we know that to be true, right? Um, you know, when the, the reality is that the Americas were stewarded and belonged to the native people of the Americas, right? To the indigenous communities here who took great care and still are taking great care of these lands, right? I stand on Tonga land um, and there's still Tonga people here in the LA area. And so a lot of times we forget that we created, you know, we, uh, our governments, right? Um, governments around the world, but we've created borders according to our political beliefs and ideologies, right? And or according to how we want to sort of, you know, shift power. And so us in the United States, we're very much, you know, um, if we if we wanna look at the history of, of how we um, were founded, 
we understand that through the colonization process, this became sort of this artificial way to really, um, I guess, take power and control, right? And so if I go back to my ancestors, I know I have both indigenous and Spanish, right? Um, be precisely because of the process of colonization that we know happened throughout the Americas with the Spanish coming here. Um, and so that's just a reality that we have to face now, but I think we could be a lot more open-minded in the way we think about borders. I mean, I totally understand this is not something we're gonna change tomorrow, right? We have a lot of interests, a lot of different opinions, um, and we are where we are. And so we, we just need to be able to figure out a system that is more practical um, in the way that we interact with our, with our neighbors. You know, it strikes me when I hear what you're saying, I think about the Berlin Wall. It seemed so solid and unbeatable and people would die trying to cross it and it was impenetrable. And then one day the people just took it down. And, you know, it seemed like uh, a few weeks before, like that could never happen. And then that impossible happened. Uh, what's your dream or vision of, 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 of what might happen in the future? I, I sometimes like even hold back from having this utopian um, view because of, while I have hope, absolutely, I have hope. Um, I think when we talk about the movement of people, I think um, we're not necessarily we're not necessarily allowing for a more robust and more organized and practical way for the movement of people, right? And the movement of people isn't necessarily keeping up with the movement of goods either, right? So I think I think that's, you know, just there's a whole economic argument here to me to be made about why it would behoove us to, you know, to just really, um, go back to the drawing board and, and try to figure out solutions on our borders that make sense, at least for these two nations, right? I mean, if we, I mean, I talked about also workers and the need for workers and the need for um, allowing for our, our population growth by way of more migration. So we know the US census figures are, you know, we, we're just not having uh, native population growth here in the U.S., right? And so I think we rely a lot on what other people, the skill sets of other people from different parts of the world that want to come here, many of them looking for refuge, right? So um, with that said, I think that we are absolutely in a position to dream bigger about how we organize ourselves in terms of like just our immigration laws and systems, right? That right now are quite punitive. So, right. yeah. So how, how much uh, is the refugee problem uh, and the huge number of people who want to migrate to this country uh, caused by uh, destabilizing efforts that U.S. military made on behalf of corporate interests? I mean, we know going from way back to the, you know, the, to the, to the banana republics and the and the way uh, the U.S. has sometimes been the uh, uh, henchman for kind of corporate interests instead of working for the people's interest. Uh, if, uh, how much is that uh, influx caused by that kind of policies? And how much could a policy that didn't put all that money into military and instead put it into, you know, building together the Americas, uh, how could that make a, a different different kind of a, kind of Americas? I mean, it would, 
we would we would move from a place of peace and from a place of humanity. And so that is a huge shift that, you know, we were talking about the need for us to go back as, as humans, to go back to a more humane and humble place, which I think I would argue we've forgotten. Many of us have forgotten what that is. And so right now we are allowing our immigration policies to be dictated by this militaristic approach, this punitive, restrictive, backwards, I would say, approach to how we view people needing to move through borders, right? And so I think I would even argue, go as far as saying that the way that we've allowed um, for the militarization of the border to take place speaks to I, and, and is also parallel to the way we've also allowed for even systems like our criminal justice system, our carceral system, right? So I see this as a broader piece of almost like an apparatus that, you know, the more we've allowed as Americans for these notions of, well, we need to intervene with police, with military, we need to, and the more we've allowed for our government to sell us the idea that we must live in fear, that argument has kind of like taken us on a spin downwards, on a downward spiral, um, whereby now there's justification for, there's some, there's this, this huge entire narrative that has been provided to us in the name of, of, of Homeland Security, right? And so, I would say, this is me personally, this is not Oxfam stands, but I would say um, that we really need to revisit the way we think about relationships with people, whether that's inside of our borders, on the borders, and people coming from, from people in other parts of the world, right? So if each one of us could envision or allow ourselves to imagine something different that doesn't operate from a militaristic standpoint, right? That doesn't keep us living in this fear-based system that someone's gonna come and get us, right? Because that's kind of the narrative that, that, that we've been given. And so therefore that's creating an, uh, a justification for, we have drones on the border. We have like surveillance cameras, we have um, barbed wire. It might as well be the outside of a jail, right? And so do we want to live that way? Do we want, do we want to look at our precious country in that manner? Like when we go down there, is that what we wanna see? Do we wanna see pepper spray being deployed on you know, people that are like literally coming across with their children? Do we want pepper spray being deployed in cities like, like Portland, like Seattle, right? Like Chicago, like how, far, how much is too much? How far have we come as a nation is what I would ask, right? Wow, I love what you said about uh, about imagining a better way, and also that fear is the key that caused this. I mean, after 9/11, and we're coming right up on that anniversary, the U.S. had a fantastic opportunity. There was an outpouring of support from all over the world, and we could have mobilized that to become kind of leaders in helping to create world law and helping to bring the world into an orderly system where we could where we could all work together to to make it a safer planet for everyone. But instead, we, we, we fell into that fear-based thing. We passed laws that took away 
the basic rights and freedoms of Americans. Uh, it was supposedly temporary laws, but they lasted. And, uh, and, and, and we fought these wars, like the war in Afghanistan that were supposed to fight terrorism. And all they did is create, you know, give birth to the Taliban and give birth to uh, the, the push the most, the most, uh, uh, the most uh, militant people into power because those were the people who were fighting the foreigners. And and so 20 years after 20 years of that military approach failing, after the Soviet huge mighty Soviet army before that tried to defeat these the the, the, the these tribesmen in Afghanistan and they couldn't do it, right. and in Vietnam. The huge French Empire couldn't do it, and the and the huge American Empire couldn't do it, and the Chinese millions of years before they couldn't do it. Maybe it's time to get over the idea that somehow we can get security by militarizing and, and, and killing bad guys. That somehow this makes the world more secure. Can't we wake up with the fall of Afghanistan and say, "My God, we need to rethink a whole new approach for for how we approach our place in the world." Yeah, absolutely, Arthur. So, I mean, you're one of those people that dream big and allow yourself to kind of like go all out there, right? And so I'm, I'm perplexed by the level of war waging that we're comfortable uh, doing as Americans. I'm, I'm, I wish more of us, there was more of us that really truly believe that war was unnecessary, right? How, so, so, I mean, at what point do you say like, yes, you go in there with retaliation with we're going to go get the bad guys, 9-11 is attack and an attack, an attack on our home soil. I mean, you kill the bad guy and then you also there's all these collateral um, deaths, right, of children and families like, how, like, how is that okay is what I'm, you know, like the balance kind of is isn't, there's no balance there. It's a, how, does, it's a, how does that make us secure? Doesn't how does that, that make, make us, us secure? more enemies? <laughs> doesn't yeah. it make us just more enemies? Right, right, exactly. And so I think, you know, we were also talking about this before we went live that I think a lot, I think as Americans, we also have, have to rethink our idea of being the saviors of the world and actually um, figure out how do we. Um, maybe do more capacity building, maybe do more um, offering tools, but allow for the leadership of each country, of the members of each country, of the citizens of each country to determine their own future forward, right? And so how do we, if we're gonna help, if we're going to come in and help and support, how do we ensure that we're leading from a place of, you know, recognizing people's humanity, people's dignity, and the fact that people have agency over their own lives, right? And so yeah. these pre-prescribed pre, pre ideas about how we do, um, how we go fix something, sometimes they're not working. And we have to actually revisit that. We actually have to we have to we have to do a little bit of a deeper analysis and like maybe maybe we were doing it all wrong maybe we need to shift absolutely the the war on terror cost 20 trillion dollars caused over a million deaths didn't make us any more secure if we had taken 20 trillion dollars and used that to develop the betterment of the world to educate women and people everywhere and to how much more would what, what, what would we have been able to do in the world if we had put that into the kind of a future you're talking about envisioning? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think of a future where all children have access to uh, a good quality education, right? Where all um, people have access to health care, where we're not fighting over, you know, the deserving and the undeserving, where we're not creating, you know, modern day, uh, um, I guess, tears or, you know, of, of, of this is, you know, this is how much we're going to get, we're, how many people we're going to allow from this category, from that category. This is how many, essentially we have these modern day systems of, you know, who we think is deserving and why, right? And so I think, you know, we, we have so much to heal as a nation. We have so much to really address in terms of um, our quality of life even. Right, because as you were saying earlier, Arthur, like our economic systems aren't working for us for the most part, right? So it's this race to the bottom in terms of like how how much you have to work just to just to make ends meet, and in that process, you become so exhausted, your body becomes so depleted, your brain is depleted. What else do you have to left to give to your family? And so I I say like. In order for us to thrive, you know, for another hundred years and to make sure that our descendants are well, like, I mean, we have to think about like, there's a world crisis in terms of climate change even, right? Like, right. so we're not even, we're not even just seeing displacement of people, you know, from across the world, we're actually having displacement of people right here internally in our backyard, right? Every time a hurricane hits, a flood, how are we addressing that? How are we updating our systems so that we're not depleting Mother Earth, so that we're ensuring that people have protections in case of disasters, which we know are inevitable, right? So those are the things I think about um, and where I, I believe that we could be spending our resources um, instead of waging wars. Wow, that, that is so moving what you said and excellent. Um, and I do want to get a little more focused, uh, a little more on the Pacific work you're doing with uh, Oxfam. But before that, I want to uh, salute you that when I went to the Oxfam page, I was very impressed to see Oxfam say they were, were joining with the patriotic billionaires uh, and the Institute for Policy Studies to call for uh, the billionaire. These were billionaires themselves saying they wanted to do it, that they should give the money, 99% of the money, they, the excess money they made getting much richer during the pandemic, just that excess money, not their basic money, that if they gave that excess money, uh, that could get everyone on the earth vaccinated against COVID and provide a $20,000 cash grant to all unemployed workers <laughs> in the world, I guess they're saying, right? I thought that was an incredible statement by Oxfam. Tell us a little bit more about Oxfam's work to shift the priorities of our planet. Yeah, I mean, we look at, um inequality as a as as being caused by poverty right world poverty and so we try to tackle the structural roots of poverty uh, which we believe one of those is um you know there's just there's 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 corporations that we so we 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 have this tagline where we say we hold the powerful accountable right and so the rich and the powerful and so we believe that there's got to be a better way to uh, make sure that, um, you know, we, that people are actually um, not being left out, not being left out and, and, you know, 
in a, in a, in a precarious way, essentially falling into poverty. And so the fact that we've seen this pandemic um, really throw more people into poverty and people around the world even is, is really kind of telling in terms of like how our corporations are organized. Like, you know, we do a lot of advocacy in terms of like just wanting to make sure that, um, I mean, they're, they're taxed the proper, properly, right? That's not my area of work, I'll be frank. Um, you know, so I can't speak too much to that, um, but we're always making sure that, uh, you know, working class families are at the forefront of the work that we do, uh, making sure that, for example, right now we have this infrastructure package, the 3.5 billion that we're trying, that is very, yes, it's infrastructure, but it's also social safety nets, right, for people that we believe um, need to be lifted out of poverty, and this is going to put people in a, on a on a better trajectory. Um, and so, um, those are the kinds of things that we have really taken it upon ourselves to advocate both with people on the hill, Congress Congress people on the hill, as well as kind of doing this work by way of um, states. And so, really coming together with coalitions. So I work with coalitions, um, and and also trying to advocate at the local level, right? With lobbying, our our representatives locally bringing in uh, different coalitions, people from faith backgrounds, people who have worked in health, um, just you know, people who understand migrant issues and care about all of these and the way that these issues really intersect so that it's not just always a migrant issue. It's not just like a women's issue, but really it's kind of like we're talking about um, poor people. At the end of the day, we're talking about the way that these systems have impacted poor people. And a lot of times it continues to leave them out of, of a safety net. So yeah, by all, by all means, we, so Oxfam is 100% independently funded. We don't take money from the government. So we feel like we're in a position to, to do that and call out the rich and powerful. So what are the ways that you, you talked about empowering local people to take their own leadership, to, 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 to reach the genius that's in them, not to be giving a handout from outside, but to be giving something that helps them uh, raise themselves uh, out of poverty and help, helps give them the tools and the, and the structures to do that. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your work in that area. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, for example, I mean, we well, I work with coalitions to um, put together trainings, even even just leadership development trainings, um, cultural uh, and even organizing and um, lobbying trainings. So really um, helping folks that are migrants, that are refugees, really kind of understand the structural issues, right? The reasons that why things are the way they are, especially if they're migrants and they're refugees and really kind of looking at who might we be needing to advocate with, right? Who are our leaders? Who are the politicians that we actually have to make a case before? And so bringing a lot of that education in terms of like advocating, how do you advocate? How do you put together some talking points? How do you um, call a congressman and set up a meeting, right? What do you have to say? What are the what are the steps for that to happen? And how do you do that in a coalition? So basically, the same approach that we take, we've taken um, we've taken that to communities to really kind of empower them 
to um, be able to just do that on their own. And next thing you know, these become organizers, they become leaders in their own communities, right? Where they're now taking the baton and kind of really empowering themselves with the information and then leading other folks that are coming after them. So it's not that the knowledge stays here with me as an advocacy advisor at Oxfam, but rather like I, I'm engaged in doing those trainings at the local level as well so that other people can just really you know, empower themselves and call their legislators on their own um, and make these demands. So, so yeah. part of part of your work is in the U.S. with getting people to mobilize to shift policies and to impact Congress. Uh, but another part of your work is directly with communities around the world, right? Uh, tell us more about your your work uh, in the in the in the communities of uh, Mexico and in Central America and so on. Yeah, so I don't work personally on um, outside of the US. My work is solely domestic, but we definitely have affiliates. We have Oxfam Mexico, Oxfam El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. And um, I mean, they're engaged in really doing a lot of this, um, also a lot of leadership development. They're working with rural communities, for example. I think I talked about this during my presentation as well. Um, in terms of like maybe even figuring out how to do farming in a more innovative way, maybe. And so there's even small scale um, grants that are offered for rural farmers, um, women in particular, to help them really, you know, cultivate their patch of, of land, you know, and so that they have, they become self-sufficient. And so obviously these are not models that are like you know, widespread or that we can potentially, you know, take care of everybody and lift all, all boats. But um, it really matters when you have, when you bring in, you know, some of this capacity building or some of the support or even economic support to a rural village, right? Where they're able then to um, just use this and really, um, in, you know, by investing in small communities, they're able to do a lot more with that. Um, also kind of, um, you know, empowering women um, and, and teaching them around, you know, what are some strategies that in which you might be able to organize yourselves and also um, bring your concerns to your local leadership, right, especially around issues around uh, gender-based violence, for example. Um, and so we met with a lot of these women in places like um, El Salvador and Honduras when we were there, when I was there on a delegation, I think it was 2019, uh, end of 2019. Um, and um, I mean, we can see the huge difference in the way that when someone's been working with in, in their own leadership development, they become a lot more self-aware, a lot more uh, feeling capable of kind of picking up, uh, just raising their own voices, right? And so just kind of, I think Oxfam does work around bringing that technical support, the capacity building, um, allowing for mini grants that can then be like really it, a smaller grant goes a long way in some of these communities. And so what we saw is folks coming from different villages, they really kind of gathered for our visit and they were just having this entire program on their own where they were having a meeting of the meetings, right? Like of different members, different, different chapters of their organizations, different colectivos. Um, and again, you know, I think, and some of them have their children with them, their young girls. And so when they see that leadership in their mothers, even the younger girls are gonna grow up 
doing the same things, right? And so I think, yeah, we bring we bring some of those tools to them, not necessarily always placing the people um, and their own autonomy and self-determination at the center of everything we do. Um, we're there just to support. But yeah, the, the, that's the kind of work that my colleagues in those countries uh, actually do, so. Yeah, right. trying to speak a little bit on behalf of their work, but I'm not doing justice to the immense, uh, the incredible amount of work that they're doing down there. Wow. Uh, we will, by the way, in about 10 minutes or so, go to questions. So if people have questions, they should raise their hands or put it in the chat. Uh, but meanwhile, I think it's so important that you're working both to empower local communities and you're working with giving them the tools for regenerative regenerative yes. agriculture, which is so important, not only for the well-being of their communities and which comes out of their own native roots, uh, but which is so important for uh, the preservation of the life on Earth. I wonder, uh, uh, have you also are you also pretty familiar with or do you have programs or have you visited Costa Rica? No, we. I don't know if we have programs, but I, I haven't visited on a, on a work related. Oh. I visit oh. on my own. Oh, yeah. you have visited on your own. I have visited on my own. Yeah, yeah. But I was uh, as a tourist uh, for like maybe a few days. So. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you did, because when you were talking about how uh, how you could envision that if we had taken the, the 20 trillion <laughs> that went into uh, f uh, fighting this war on terror, uh, and had used it in other ways. We could have, uh, you know, uh, we could have every every person get an education. We could have every person have uh, clean energy. Well, uh, Costa Rica is an example that did that. Uh, they were surrounded by hostile military powers. So they had an incredible president had the foresight to just get rid of their military and then nobody could attack them. There was nobody to attack. And so they've stayed safe for over 70 years. When they did have a challenge, they took it to the inter-American court that most people just don't even deal with, but the court all came to their defense. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not using a military, so sure. And they, they stopped the incursion. And uh, uh, you know, Costa Rica, uh, if, I, if I understand it right, they have 99% renewable energy. Every single person gets an education, and they rate number one in the in the in the uh, World Happy Index, uh, Global Happy Index. Uh, mm -hmm. So, is that an example to show us? Uh, and how does that impact? How do they impact the work in other parts of the region? And do they give an example to other parts of the region of uh, of an alternative way to go? I mean, I would say yes. I mean, when I visited, I. I mean, I'm not going to say there's zero, zero poverty, but I think for a lot, a lot of the folks were quite pleased when I, I usually ask like cab drivers and like shuttle drivers, you know, what, it, what do they think? I usually try to engage people on a political conversation when, everywhere I go. But um, I think we should be looking at all these models, Arthur. Um, I think, I think we, we are, um, we're, we're standing in our own way by ways of this American exceptionalism where we think we're the best, but I don't know that that's true because there are so many models like the one you just mentioned in where people are doing it a lot better. Mm -hmm. In our nation, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, may call this very utopian or idealistic thinking, but I don't believe that there need to be any, there needs to be anyone in poverty in this country. We are one of the richest countries in the world. It doesn't make sense that we have such levels of detrimental poverty, homelessness in the state of California, Southern California, we see this a lot. And so 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not a politician. I'm not up there, you know, discussing like new models of, you know, sh shifting new models. But I'd absolutely say we need leaders who are more open to ideas that haven't been tried in this country. I think, you know, we as people, we really need to change our ideology in terms of how we think about. I think we're we're really, um, I think the fact that we have two political systems doesn't help us because it's it's kind of like this binary of one or the other, right? It's either black or it's white. And so like, because we don't have a more amplified um, system here, many people do not see themselves anymore in one or the other in, re in a Republican category or a Democrat category, right? That does that, that system, this model isn't fitting most people. And I'd say it's harming us because, and again, I have to say, this, this is my thoughts. This is not an Oxfam talking point or anything like that. Um, this is just what I think. Um, I think people have become disenchanted, if you will, with our political system. Right, I've I've done canvassing. I've done tons of door knocking. I've done. I've had people look at me straight in the eye and say, "What is voting going to do?" I mean, I that hurts, but I mean they're not entirely wrong. Wow. So so I'm. I would just I guess invite us. There's not a solution here, a one size like solution. I would continue to invite us to bring ideas of innovation, bring ideas of curiosity even um, to everybody that we come in contact with, right? Wow. If wow. we're not satisfied with something, let's continue to talk about to the people that maybe can make some influence and do have the ability to make some change. Let's continue to bring these ideas to them and not well, succumb to what we have, yeah. Well, you are you are so right. You're you're clearly one of us, and you're thinking because you know. Uh, and, and I think the people who uh, who make a difference and are powerful are each one of us. It's not those congressmen and senators. They're 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 stuck in a broken system. Uh, mm -hmm. That system is so broken that it. it, it I, I really almost think see it as impossible for it to make the change we need in the world. And that's why you know Bucky Fuller, of course, said that. You never solve a problem by fighting the old reality. Einstein said you never solve a, a problem at the level at which it was created. You have to invent the new model. You have to create something ab above and outside that. And that's why uh, Gary Davis and we and the People Powered Planet have been advocating, how do we invent some new, better system? And, you know, we used to think, uh, you know, oh, well, like currency had to be U.S. currency or French currency and cryptocurrency came along. Oh, no, that's impossible. That's a sham and all that. And now it's starting to surge. It's starting to really take off in a big in a big way. And the nations can't stop it. They try. They stamp it out. They stamp it out. But it's something beyond them. I'd like to see us in a political way do what you said. Find a way that we the people start coming together in the planet in a new creative uh, outside the box thinking, not win-lose democracy, the majority wins and beats the bad guys and then, then they win the next time and you're fighting against each other, but a win-win synergistic system where we're all collaboratively coming together to, uh, to, to invent the world we choose. And we can do it. We invented this current system. It's, not, it's a fiction that humans made up. Humans can imagine and invent something new. And that's why it's so exciting to have you on here. Uh, let's see if Melanie has any other, do you have any other questions we should take it to yet, Melanie? Well, hello. I just want to 
Christina, thank you for your wonderful work that you're doing and you're so clear. In fact, Maria wanted to say, she said in the, in the, in the chat, she says, I think the work she is doing is very inspiring. She is so clear in the way the organi her organization works. It's so impressive. And that, that's all, what it takes. We all, you know, like you said, new ideas uh, we have, and you seem very inclusive and adding, <clears throat> excuse me, adding, uh, other people's ideas and looking forward and and um, it's beautiful what you said. Thank you so much. Um, yes, we do have <clears throat> a question. Sorry about that. Um, we'd like to go to Jack. Jack, go ahead and unmute and ask your question. Yeah, great presentation. Um, I often think even as I look about, look at all of you, when you were four years old, that's the way I try to look at people like because they get hurt and they get things happen to them and they change and all of that. But they were innocent when they were little and four. So the question I liked in terms of world citizenship is to ask in every village, in every city, in every town in, in the world, how are the children? And if the answer is they're educated, they're safe, they're encouraged, they're loved, they're fed, then that's fantastic. So as a Canadian, and I, just, I don't even like to say that because yeah, as you think of world citizenship, I try not, I'm trying not to always think of myself as a Canadian. And, th and that's, that's not easy because I, I, I like Canada, right? But one of the things that I wondered about in terms of what you're saying a little bit is that is, if Canada dropped its military, which Costa Rica did, very, very intriguing idea uh, there, um, it feels to me sometimes that I've been raised in this country for 75 years. Um, and has Canada really had a good run in that time? It's been a good country. It's been pretty safe. It's changing a lot like the rest of the world right now. We've got an election, which I don't know if we need right now in two weeks. But um, is, is part of my experience in Canada because the US has such a strong military, that we're kind of like living in the village outside the castle down by the river and the knights are meeting inside around the round table. So that idea of speak softly, but carry a big stick that you hear, it's hard for me to figure things out sometimes a little bit. And, um, and, and, and I do, the other thing I, I just think is that so often the easiest thing and the laziest thing to do in life is to be a cynic. That you're cynical about your leaders, you're cynical about your country, you're cynical about your neighbor, you're cynical about your council, whatever that is, when you could be a solutionary, right? Don't come with your cynicism, come with your solution. And you're just doing a beautiful job of that. But it, it, is, it is difficult to look at that issue of, do you drop your guard? I mean, I'm a believer, so I have a creator and a way that I look at life, and he looks after me every day and says to me, do not worry. I will call you home when I want, my father will call me home, either my creator father or my real father, who knows, right? So I try to live in that light. And in fact, working on the idea of a people's light in our community, that could our city 
in Kelowna, British Columbia, could become a city of light. Mm. That we rise to 13 words that we've identified like 13 moons and 13 parts of the turtle's back. And those 13 words of hope and love and peace and harmony and reconciliation and stewardship and whatever those words might be, that could each of us individually rise to those words and could we as a community rise to those words. So we're building 13 pieces of art that have light infused in them to call us to those higher places in our, in our individual personhood, right? And I, and, and I hope that that would then expand to many villages, many cities that could do that too. And we could all come to a different conversation with one another, right? On there, but it is a complex issue, but isn't it, you know, such beautiful work you're doing. Thank you so much. This has been a really, really, I've got great notes here. <laughs> I, I love getting good notes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Jack. That was very um, inspiring. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we need more of that, of this kind of thinking. Um, we can all sulk in cynicism. I mean, we have a lot of reasons to to do that. Um, I mean, I've certainly had my moments, right? We all, I'm, as I'm sure we all do, <laughs> where you just want to kind of like throw the covers at you and just like hide and just say, oh no. Uh, I, I brace myself be every morning before I go and check my phone for the news because as part of my work, right, I have to stay informed, particularly mm -hmm. around issues of migration. And I'm, yeah, I like half of me also already expects some of the stuff that I see happening. And um, now my job is to figure out what is my, how can I mitigate this best with what I have? That's my job. Uh, and how do I bring hope to others? Um, how do I fight from my position of power and influence the little that I do have and, 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 and privilege so that others, I can make life a little bit more comfortable for others. And so that at the least they can see that there are people fighting for them, right? Um, and so that's, uh, I think what I, helps me go to sleep at night, I guess. Yeah. I love that. Yes, and we, it's so important to, to stay in that light and also do something, I mean, you know, take a break if you need to, take care of yourself if you need to, but it, having this vision for a beautiful future, and I've got it, I've got it really, you know, what I'm excited about is um, the idea that we reward people for doing the right things, the right things for the planet, and reward, you know, just kind of snowballing that, and that's, that goes along with uh, what Arthur was talking about, the uh, seeds, uh, uh, cryptocurrency, that's, uh, that's another amazing thing. So we, all of us together, and definitely, yes, what you're saying, Jack, just, you know, don't just sit there and criticize. You want to get out and be a solutionary. So great, yeah. great, great. So now we want a question from, question and comment from Claire. Claire, go right ahead. Uh, I was wondering, how do you prevent corruption? Sometimes when you give people money, uh, they hire their sisters and brothers, <laughs> and uh, uh, they have a big party, and uh, uh, how do you uh, encourage them to um, be uh, careful with their uh, money? Uh, corruption on behalf of who? I, I guess I should ask, like this, like who's doing the corruption? Because there's uh, the people that you give the money to. Uh, sometimes they, um, the first thing they do is they, they all go out and have a big dinner, you know, like 
uh, how like uh, there are obviously guidelines in how they're supposed to uh, uh, work with the money that you give them, right? Do you mean as an organization when we issue grants and things yeah. like that? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think we are in relationship with the people that we give grants to, right? We're not uh, writing checks out to strangers. And um, we, it's part of my job, actually, as an advocacy advisor to recommend which groups, um, you know, local groups, for the most part, in my case, um, we would want to support because their work is aligned with what our goals are. And if, if I, if, if, and so we, I come in first building a relationship with people that are actually carrying out the work on the ground, right? And so I'm more of a middle to like grass tops, you know, uh, sort of ad advisor, but it's part of my job to really look at who's who are the organizers in states like Arizona, New Mexico, who, what policies are they trying to shift that I can help them leverage? What kind of work are they doing? Who's doing the work, right? And so I start there and I start by introducing myself humbly, right? Understanding we're a huge global giant organization in comparison to some of the other forks. And so I never wanna be viewed as I'm parachuting in mm. To telling to, te to in order to tell folks what to do, so we stem from the we work from the idea that people have self determination over their own lives. People know what they need, and so um, actually we're very um, we don't attach too many strings and bureaucracies to the way we issue funding, which I'm very proud of, um, because that can tie people up and having to jump through all these hoops. When I know that their time, we know that their time is better spent actually carrying out the work on the ground versus having to answer to us in terms of 3 million pieces of documents that they have to give me. So we make it a lot easier, but because we've put in the work to get to know these people and their work, right? So if I've done my due diligence, my job well, then I, I will know exactly what kind of work our money is going to go towards, right? And so I would actually, to take this outside of the, um, even even further, not in a non-work related setting, um, sometimes when I give people, when, I, when my husband does this more than I do, I have to say, he'll give, you know, he'll, he'll give people on the street money when they ask, right? Um, somebody standing on the, on a highway, somebody standing on a corner or whatever. And he gives from his heart, regardless of what that person is going to go do with that two dollars or those five bucks it's that person's it's that person's um problem at that point so i, I if we're gonna give we have to give with no strings attached right i can't be concerned with how that person is going to be spending their money or what they're going to go use it in if they want to go buy themselves a nice dinner then so be it you know what if they Unfortunately, yes, we know a lot of people are suffering from mental illness, from substance abuse and all of those things. Guess what? Those things are a direct result of structural poverty, structural inequality. So I understand that. And me as an advocate and as a human, I need to just give from my heart and not give with this idea that they need to be using it to buy whatever I think they should be buying, right? So 
that's just to take it outside of the, of the work context. Is I think we I think if we all gave in that way, we'd be a better people. We'd better be a better place, right? And so, um, yeah. You want to you want to support the things you want to see in the world. So you want to see people healthy and happy. You can give money on the street. That's from your heart. And then Oxfam, I love what you said that you don't have these strings and all these hoops you have to go through because as my experience in nonprofit, that takes so much time. You're writing, you're trying to write a grant. What would the person want? You're trying to fix yourself. So you're kind of like what they want. And then you're not getting anything done. Right. You're just looking for money all the time over and over again. So now um, I guess we're, this is the time to go back to Arthur. Thank you so much. Mwah. Thank you, Melanie. Yeah. I feel like I, I feel like I want to hug you now. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> okay, but back to Arthur. Arthur. Oh, we should have a hug. Yes. So, just I want to say you're an extraordinary guest, and I really uh, have appreciated so much uh, both the things you said and and the way you said them uh, with just such such beauty and heart and so articulately. You know, I too feel feel like giving you a hug, and I see uh, Jack's got. Oh, Jack, do you want to introduce us to? Uh, you to uh, somebody there. This is Ibi, and Ibi's originally from Hungary. And when I read books about the Hungarian Revolution and understood what mankind was capable of doing, it, uh, it, it there's where it drives me to try to do good every day to make things better, not worse. It's so important that people like Jack and you and everybody here that we're working to spread that light that helps us rise above the fear uh, to create the world we choose. Uh, so I really appreciate that. I do want to ask a little bit more if you could tell us about how can people personally get involved in Oxfam? What are the ways they can get involved and in working with your group? Yeah, we um, are always um, wel welcoming people into our work. Um, there's, you know, you can always visit our website to see what kinds of issues um, you might want to be involved in. I work on the specifically on the migration campaign. Um, and depending on where you're sitting and what state, if you're in the US, um, a lot of times I do need people who are passionate about advocating on behalf of migrants and refugees to join our legislative meetings. Um, sometimes we'll have panels, we'll have events. Um, sometimes we'll ask you to sign a petition. We have a lot of those um, and or add your voice right, to something that we're doing. Um, and so you can visit our website, you can send me an email. We also have a people's vaccine campaign. <laughs> and that's just because we're trying to make the case that the world needs to be vaccinated, not just the United States and the wealthier countries of the world, that this pandemic is not gonna end as long as people aren't vaccinated in other parts of the world, right? Like we're interconnected and this is a true test of humanity. And so there's a whole other uh, group of my colleagues working on that campaign. So applying pressure to the powers that be is all we do every day. <laughs> so if this sounds like work you wanna get involved in, like, let me know, um, we, we can plug you in. I wonder whether you'd like to give us some some last thoughts uh, about, uh, about this and about, uh, what do you feel is empowering the people in the world? I'll just mention what I, one of my belief systems is building relationships um, and ensuring that we are in relationship with people, right? Um, I think that the way we're gonna change the world, the way we're gonna change 
our, our environment and the way we're gonna change our own policies is by communicating and making our voices heard and actually being curious about people that are different than us, right? We have a lot of, and maybe not for this group, maybe this group here is already doing this work, but I would encourage, you know, even the listeners when they hear this on the podcast to get curious about what you don't understand, right? And when I say get curious, I mean, I don't mean go to CNN or Fox or whatever is the most popular network out there, right? Like, I don't mean that. I don't mean read something about what others are saying. I, I mean, actually, um, reach out to people, reach out to your neighbors, right? Reach out to the people that you have questions about. Maybe they have questions about, maybe they have questions for you, right? And I would urge us to get to know particularly our refugee and migrant neighbors, right? Um, because we're sharing a planet here, right? In this case, we're sharing a country. And so, we might as well just get in relationship with them versus allowing for these narratives to become, to overtake us and to allow these narratives that we hear all these fabricated narratives. Like, do we really want others to tell us how to think about these issues that are so critical to humanity? Do we really want, are we willing to allow others to think for ourselves, right? When we can actually develop our own perceptions, our own intimate relationships with people that um, that we don't know, we, we simply just don't know. So I think my last message is get curious about what you don't know. Wow, beautiful, beautifully yeah. said. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful uh, podcast, uh, wonderful, uh, you're a wonderful guest. Uh, and you. we're so grateful to that. And uh, we look forward to having everyone join us again next week. Now, next week, every once in a while, we have a Q&A about our film, The World is My Country. Uh, we put this out and make it available to people and people who want to ask questions can come to that Q&A. And so uh, I know, Christina, you got to watch half our movie, but not the rest. But if you get to watch the rest and you have questions, you're welcome to come back and join us the same time next week with your questions and comments. And if people have more questions and thoughts about you know, I worked with Gary for many years about his whole ideas of synergistic methods of, of creating new ways to, to govern and work with the planet. I know uh, Tom and others here have all been interested in that too. Uh, if you have questions about that or any other questions uh, uh, about Gary and the film and the story or about the World Passport in the uh, long version of the film, which is available on Vimeo, Melanie, or you just go to theworldismycountry.com uh, and just click right on, you know, how to view and so on. Uh, but the longer version uh, tells a lot more about the world passport. And we started out today with Abdul showing us his uh, world passport that he received there in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. But that also might be helpful to some of the work of Oxfam and with refugees and so on. Thank you again for joining us and appreciate so much being a part of another People Powered Planet podcast. World citizen, lift up your voices. Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. One way.